Father, I want to thank you for these guys, Lord, and I thank you uh, for this time that you've given us to go through your word. And Lord, I really pray that you speak to us through it, Father. Um, Lord, um, I thank you for the time and the chance to, to, to go over this text, Lord. And, and yeah, Lord, help us to, to understand that which you're teaching us through it, Lord. Um, so we thank you, Lord, and we invite you into this time, Lord. And Lord, may it all be about you, Lord, and, and help us to understand the text correctly, Lord, and, and, and help us um, by your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives, Lord. So yeah, Father, we thank you for this time, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So it's, uh, it's pretty impossible to ignore some of the recent events that have been taking place in our country, um, especially, but all over the world. You know, we've seen horrific acts of terror. We've seen uh, acts of, of evil and, and suffering. Um, and, and often we can, we maybe struggle to, to understand it, to kind of grasp what's, what on earth is going on in the world in which we see. And I don't often quote from this person. Actually, I pretty much never quote from this guy. But Justin Bieber, I know, believe it or not, actually had one really good thing to say. I don't recommend him as a role model or anything like that. But um, something that he said at the Manchester Benefit concert for the terror attack recently um, actually was, was spot on. He said this. He said, God is good in the midst of the darkness. God is good in the midst of the evil. Uh, God is good in the midst, no matter what's happening in the world. God is in the midst, and he loves you, and he's here for you. And, 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 and he was spot on. There's one minute where I can, there's actually a moment where I can be like, actually, dude, yeah, actually, I, I, amen to that. And this is exactly what we're going to see in our text today um, as we look at the beginning of the book of Exodus and the beginning of the life of Moses. Okay, We're going to see that. We're going to see great evil. We're going to see great sin. We're going to see great suffering. And yet we will see God present throughout the narrative, working about his greater plan and his purpose through it all. And my desire today is that it would be an encouragement and a comfort to us in the midst of the crazy situations which are going in and around us in our very own city, that we would know that God is both with us and God is working through us and that God is ultimately in control. So as I say, turn to your Bibles. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at parts from chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we may skip a couple bits here and there um, just for the sake of time. But if you've got a Bible or on the sheets, if you want to turn to uh, Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to scroll down to verse 6. So going from verse 6, it says this. So this is Exodus 1 and verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all their generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The book of Exodus is in many ways a continuation of the book of Genesis. It begins essentially where Genesis ended and with the author is setting the scene for what is about to take place. Okay, so Joseph and his family uh, had settled in the land of Egypt. 
And, uh, and it was all a result of God's amazing act of salvation. And time goes by. And Joseph and his brothers pass away. But what we read is that the family remains in Egypt and the family begins to multiply. And literally generation after generation, the family multiplies. What starts as 70 people becomes a nation. And this is, this is just as God had promised. And as the text says, they were fruitful. They greatly increased. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong and they filled the land of Egypt. The scene is set, and that's when we see the following takes place. In verse 8, it says this, And now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, as we see, a considerable amount of time has passed since Joseph was alive. And as a new pharaoh is appointed, it says that he did not know Joseph. Now, this could be that he may have literally never heard of him, or that he simply chose to ignore him and have no regard for him and his descendants. Okay, either way, all that Joseph and his family had done for Egypt, which we read in the book of Genesis, how through Joseph they would bring about salvation for Egypt and for the rest of Joseph's family. All of that, all that his people had done for the Egyptians, they had forgotten. And the king then looks down from his throne and he looks down at the people of Israel with disdain. He sees them as a threat that must be dealt with. And so he speaks to the people, he speaks to the very Egyptians, okay? and he says, he, say, he tells them that Israel have become too strong. And if we're, not, if we're not careful, they could turn against us. From the leadership downwards to the people, a heart of discrimination, prejudice, racism and fear grows among the Egyptians, which will eventually lead to action. And you see this in the very next verse, okay? 11 to 14 says this. And therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Pitom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The Egyptians ultimately come to enslave the Israelites. Generation after generation of enslavement. And yet, in the midst of of widespread suffering, we see God's grace at work. An undercurrent of his purposes that just cannot be stopped. And this is, there is a key verse which displays this. When we read and what we just read, and see if you can see it. In literally in just what we just read there, where it says these words, but the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Do you see that? Despite Pharaoh's best efforts, he cannot seem to stop the people from growing. In these pages, in the middle of suffering, we see God fulfilling the very promise he gave to Joseph's great-granddad Abraham. The promise to turn his family into a nation, and a nation which would bless the whole world, including us. You see, nobody can ever stop the promises and plans of God. And yet, unfortunately, this truth won't stop Pharaoh from trying. You see, sin, sin always leads to death. Sin in, our, uh, sin in our lives that is not dealt with will always increase, becoming darker and darker. You see, Pharaoh arrives at the point where he is, as we're about to see in a second, he is willing to systematically try and kill off the Israelites. But don't miss that he didn't begin at this place. But rather, it was a process. What starts as indifference and discrimination eventually turns to genocide. We read this in the next verse, in verse 15. It says this, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Zephra, and the other Purah. And he said this to them, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And then the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Two things I want you to note. Firstly, I want you to note is the bravery of the midwives. They refused to follow the instructions of the king, despite putting their own lives in danger as a result. And the text shows us the fuel for such courage. Look at it, the text where it says, but the midwives feared God. You see, in their hearts and minds, God was bigger to them, bigger to them than Pharaoh. They had a greater view of God than they did of the one who threatened them. And this is how we conquer fear in our lives. We need a bigger vision of God. See, you know, what or who are you fearful of? Who are you trying to please? Whom are you trying to serve? As Paul reminds us, we just can't do both. We can't seek to please both man and God. Verse in Galatians 1, in verse 10 says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here the midwives were presented with a choice, a choice we all face, which is, it's either obey man or obey God. Seek the approval of man or seek the approval of God. And our choice is the same. Our situations may be different, maybe the stakes aren't as high, but the choice is still the same. It's either going to be God's will or man's will. We cannot, as that verse in Paul says, we cannot be a follower of Christ and, and remain to live to please man. 
when we choose to follow Christ, no matter the immediate cost, it becomes a great witness to the world that says that Jesus is worth more than what the world can offer. And the hope in that there's, I love that verse in Galatians because there's the challenge, but embedded in there is hope. And, it's, and, and that hope is found in that one word, still. Because Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Which, which implies that at one point, that's, he, that was his state. His state was a guy who lived to please men, and then he, he has moved to a place where he is now living for Christ and living to please Christ. And that gives us hope, because let's honest, we're often that guy over here. We're often wrestling with living to please other people, as opposed to living to please God. And as I say, when we, when we do make that choice to choose him above everything else, no matter what the cost, it becomes a great witness to the world, as these women were a great witness as well. The second thing I want you to note as well is this. Once again, it is the undercurrent of God's grace. And we may ask, okay, how is God's grace displayed in this event? And once again, it says, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You see, God uses the midwives to save the lives of the people. But not only that, God then blesses the midwives with families of their own. And he continues to multiply them. As a nation, they continue to grow in size and strength. And in response, Pharaoh once again ups his treatment of them. It says this in in the very last verse of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people... So first of all, he addresses the midwives, okay? He's only talking to them, but now he's going further to address the very people of Egypt, and he says this to them. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You see, Pharaoh increases his plans for genocide, and as I say, this time he's addressing the very people. Now, whether this this actually means that this is done through the people telling the authorities to then go and grab the babies and kill them, or whether it's actually giving the people license to do it themselves. I don't know if it's very clear. But in, in, in any regards, we, we, you know, I'd imagine it's actually maybe a bit of both. But in any regards, you can imagine these, these people are now in fear of, their, the fear of their children's lives. They're literally looking over their shoulder. You know, and when we're looking at such horrific events, it's easy for us to look and say, oh, we can never do such a thing. We've obviously evolved over the years as a society. You know, this is in the past. This is a barbaric time in history. And yet the truth is this. Thousands and thousands of years since this event, the truth is that we are just like the Egyptians. That we are capable of terrible acts of sin. And things like this still happen today. In our own kind of immediate kind of history, both as a nation and kind of in in Europe, we don't even have to go back a hundred years to see similar scenes. Where we see in the Second World War when Nazis dragged Jews off to concentration camps. You see, the truth is that thousands and thousands of years we're still doing the same things because ultimately we still have the same issue and that issue is sin. You see, the truth is that it's not just the Israelites who are in need of a saviour, but it's also the Egyptians too. The Egyptians who are enslaved to their own fear and and ultimately their own sin. And the same is true of us. We're in need of a saviour. 
And it is against this backdrop that God sends a redeemer. A child is born who will be given the name Moses. And through this man, God will rescue his people. Turn to the next chapter, so chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and it now says this in verses 1 to 10. says this. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. So she shore the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. I think we need to take a second here to marvel at the brilliance of God. Because cause, cause this stuff is, is so crazy, you couldn't make it up, right? Okay, so firstly, Moses doesn't die from being put in the Nile, okay? That's amazing in itself, right? One of the longest rivers in the world. But instead, he is miraculously found by the king's daughter. And, 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 and not just that he's found by the king's daughter, but the fact that the king's daughter doesn't act on the decree that her father has given. And if that wasn't amazing enough, the fact that then Moses' very own mother is then brought to nurse him, to look after him, and she even gets paid to do it. I mean, that's just crazy, right? I mean, think about it, right? Imagine how her desperation would have turned to joy. Imagine how on the beginning of that day, out of complete desperation, she gives up her child to try and save him. And she doesn't know what's going to happen. And yet by the end of the day, that, that sorrow then turns to joy. You see, behind the scenes, God is working bringing all things together for his purpose and his plan. None of that stuff was by accident. But it was God acting behind the scenes. Once again, it's that current of God's grace and God's plan and God's purpose. And as the narrative continues, we begin to see that Moses, as many people in Scripture, is far from perfect. And he is, as I say, he is perhaps not the first guy we would think of to be chosen to lead Israel we read this in verse 11 to 15 and it says this one day when Moses had grown up he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people 
He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. You see, Moses sees firsthand the oppression of his people. And he tries to take things into his own hands. And the result is that he kills a man. Moses becomes, in essence, a murderer. And granted, his heart for injustice is great, but the way in which he expresses it isn't. You see, he knew that he was a Hebrew, and as he sees one of them being beaten, he firstly looks to make sure nobody is watching, and then he kills the man and tries to hide the evidence. When this event is accounted for, or retold once again, in the book of Acts, We see that the author uses the word avenge, that Moses defended and avenged. And I don't think that the problem is the defending part, but the problem is the avenging part. It seems to be that from from those two texts, it seems to be that there is a point after the altercation that then Moses proceeds to then take vengeance on the Egyptian who was mistreating the Hebrew. You see, when thinking about this, and as I say, I think it's one of those things where his heart is in the right place, and yet the way in which he goes about it is perhaps not the, well, not perhaps, definitely not the best way to go about things. Because we see, in essence, Moses trying to take things into his own hands. And you most likely haven't been guilty of killing someone, but I think most of us know what it's like to try and take things into our own hands. Right? We get tired of God's timing. We decide to act on our own. Or maybe we try to replace God, for example, in the life of someone else. Right? We may make it our sole responsibility to try and save someone or to fix a person or to fix and save a situation. And in essence, what we can sometimes, if we're not careful, we can become what someone may be called a functional saviour, where we replace God, where we replace his role of saving people. You see, whenever you begin to say the words, things like this, oh, you don't understand, they need me, or you don't understand, without me, unless I'm here, unless me, they need me. As soon as we begin to say words like that, we forget that salvation doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And one of the verses which really struck me for this, which I came across about a year or so ago, yeah, almost two years ago now, when going through Revelation. It says this in Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this, I looked, and behold, and this is John having this amazing, amazing vision. It says this, A great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. So imagine that scene, a, a multitude that you cannot even number. 
people from all different cultures and nations, all different languages, and they are all crying out with one loud voice. They are saying this, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God. Salvation does not belong to you and salvation does not belong to me. It belongs solely to God. It is his job to save because, let's be honest, he is the only one who can truly save. Our job is simply to be available to be used as a tool for his salvation. But it is his job to save because salvation belongs to him. And when we begin to understand that, that begins to free us up to follow him as we should. It begins, for, it begins to free us up to serve people as we should. And it allows us to point people ultimately to Jesus because he owns salvation. I love that word belongs. It's his possession. He owns it and he's the one who distributes it. And this is a truth that Moses didn't understand at the time, but it's one that he would come to understand in the future. And looking back to the text, you see everybody knows what Moses did and it's not long till Pharaoh finds out. Now Moses becomes Egypt most wanted. He becomes a fugitive and as a result he must run for his life. And this is where we read he ends up. He ends up in the land of Midian. And we'll briefly read these verses. 16 to 22 says this. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs with water to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughter, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said I have been a sojourner in a foreign land so we see here that Moses ends up in the land of Midian and what we'll see happen is that Moses will kind of essentially begin a new life dude gets married So it turns out, guys, all you need to do is find some girls in distress from some shepherds, save them, and hey, you may just get the father-in-law asking you to marry them. That's mostly not going to happen, but you never know. So, but anyway, he sets up a new life for himself. And we'll see that he is kind of comfortable where he is, and years and years down the line, as you read in chapter 3 and 4, and I'd encourage you, if you get a chance, read through chapter 3 and 4. They're great chapters of how God enters in and speaks to Moses and gives him this amazing call, literally out of nowhere. So if you get time, do have a read of that. But as we've been looking, as we read through this narrative, we've seen horrific acts of evil and we've picked up little bits here and there, which I believe demonstrate the love and grace of God working in the midst of great darkness. But it is really in the last few verses of this chapter that this truth is confirmed And we are reminded of just how great our God is. We read this in verse 23 to 25. It says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. 
and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. These verses help us not only understand the narrative that has just taken place, which we've just been reading, but it gives us an insight into who God is and what he is like. And we see four things about God. In two, just two simple verses, we see four things about God, four ways we see God respond to the suffering of his people, the suffering of Israel. We see this, we see that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So remember this thing, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So let's briefly unpack those four things. Start with the first one, God hears. When you cry out to him, he always hears. God is not like us. He doesn't have any issues hearing. Okay, think about it. Our hearing is limited by volume. Okay, we speak too quietly. We can't understand what someone is saying. Okay, our hearing is also limited by the fact that we can't listen to multiple people at the same time. Right, most of us struggle even when just two people are speaking at the same time to get all the information. We all have that, right? You're talking to one person and somebody's trying to talk to you on the other side and, and you've, you've suddenly missed what you're saying to that person because you're kind of taking in that person and you're kind of doing a bit and a bit and a bit. You know, how many times I've done that in, when I've been at work, you're talking to one customer and then you talk to another customer while you're also talking to this customer saying, yeah, yeah, and then you just agree to sign and you can't remember what you agreed to. Or you're on the phone. It happens all to me all the time on the phone. You're like, yep, yep, yep. What do you want? Yep, yep. Oh, uh, yep, yep. We've all done that. But God doesn't have that issue. You see, God is not like us. His hearing is not limited. Okay, it doesn't matter if you whisper or you, if you shout from the top of your lungs, he hears you. It doesn't matter what language you speak in, he hears you every single word. Not only that, but he's able to hear every single voice. Every single voice of the billions of people that live on this earth at the same time. And he hears each one with such clarity and focus as if, if, if they were the only one speaking. That's how amazing our God is. He hears, so talk to him. He hears our cries and he invites us closer. So what is stopping you? But you might say, Daniel, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know the things I've thought, the things I've said, the things that have been done to me, the shame I feel. How can I approach this God who is beyond me, who is so amazing? And the truth is, you're right, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what's been done to you, but I do know what Jesus has done. It was because of our sin he came. He died in our place on the cross so we could once again approach God. But this time not with shame because of what we've done, but with boldness because of what Jesus has done. You see, if you know Jesus, we have this beautiful promise, which the, he, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4 and verse 15, where he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, we have a high priest, we have a God who is able to sympathize with us and our weaknesses 
And it says this, and it continues, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, because of Jesus, we have access to the Father. We have access to God. And when we do, we receive the mercy and the grace that we need for our time of need. Um, a guy, a guy called Simon Gidabout, who wrote a book called Choose Life, he uh, recounts a, a, quite a, a historic story which kind of helps illustrate this verse. And he, he describes it this way. So during the American Civil War, a soldier was granted permission to seek a presidential hearing due to a family tragedy. And he went to Washington but was promptly refused entry and dismissed from the White House. And he despaired of what to do and wandered down the road to a park where a little boy came up to him to ask what was wrong. The soldier poured out his heart, he poured out his story, he poured out his woe. And to his surprise, the boy replied, come with me. And the boy led the soldier back to the White House. None of the guards stopped them as they took a detour around the back. The various metal emblazoned guards stood to attention as they walked past. And the soldier couldn't believe what was happening. And when they came to the presidential office, the boy entered without so much as a knock. And the Secretary of State was briefing President Abraham Lincoln who interrupted him and turned to the boy to ask, What can I do for you, Todd? And Todd said, Dad, this soldier needs to talk to you. You see, this soldier did not have access to the president, and yet it was through the president's son that the soldier could meet with him. And that is uh, just a tiny glimpse, quite an, an amazing story, a great illustration of, of the access we now have to, to we now have to the Father. We don't have access to a present as great as that may or may not be, but rather we have even greater access to somebody even greater, and that is God himself, and that is all through the Son. So our challenge and encouragement to you is this. Talk to him, because he hears and he's provided the way for us to meet with him. Second thing, so that's first thing, God hears. Second thing we see is God remembers. Now we need to look a bit deeper to kind of understand the implication of this because the way it's translated into English isn't that helpful, okay? Because it sounds like God has forgotten about his promises, okay? But then suddenly remembers because that's the way we use the word remember, okay? So it kind of think, wait a minute, did God just kind of suddenly forget? So God's kind of going along and suddenly, oh yeah, Israel, my people. Man, how could I have forgotten about you? Of course I remember you. That is not what the text is saying because we know that God is not like, God knows everything. He, he doesn't have issues with remembering things like we do, okay? We forget things. Man, my memory is so bad at times. God's memory is not like that. Not only he remembers things and he remembers his people, he doesn't forget Okay, so what does it mean? Okay, if you were to look at the original word in the Hebrew, is zakah. And it basically means this, it means to mark or to be recognized, to remember by implication, to mention. To remember, to be mindful, to recount, to recall, to mention, to bring to memory, to call, to come, to keep. 
and, uh, and essentially, or to think upon. Essentially, one commentator explains it this way, which is quite helpful. The Hebrew verb used here is zakai, he says, and often appears in conjunction with some activity, referring to a memory that prompts a specific course of action. Let me say that again. So a memory that prompts a specific course of action. You see, the word is not saying that God forgot about Israel and then suddenly remembered. But rather, at just the right moment, he is choosing to act in light of the promises he gave in the past. You see, he's given promises in the past to Abraham, and now this is the point for which he is now acting upon those things. And I hope you've already seen that God was at work during this period. He's, he's already been at work. There's been that undercurrent of God, but rather now this is now all growing to the pinnacle. It's growing to the climax. This is essentially, this is the main event. And that main event is him sending a redeemer. God is about to act in accordance with the promise that he has made beforehand. He's going to act in accordance with that. He's going to send a redeemer. He is going to send Moses. And we see that call to Moses in the next chapter. So God hears, and maybe instead of saying God remembers, let's say God acts. So God hears and God acts in light of his promises. And we see this, God sees. So God sees everything that has taken place on earth, in our country, our cities, our schools, our homes, our families, our bedrooms. God sees it all. He saw every moment of suffering that each individual in Israelite endured. He sees it all. Not only does he see the outer, he also sees the inner. He sees our thoughts. He sees the motives of our hearts. Nothing can be hidden from him. He doesn't miss a thing. He literally sees everything. But not only does he see things, he knows things. It says, God knew I love it, just that last, that very three last words of that verse, and God knew. God knew exactly how they felt. God knew their pain, he knew their sorrow, God knows. He knows your pain, your sorrow, your heart, he knows. And this isn't just an intellectual knowledge of the facts, it's a personal knowledge that chooses to enter into our pain, it chooses to enter into our hurts to enter into our brokenness to enter in and save us for the israelites god chose to send moses as their redeemer but a day would come when our greater moses would come you see another baby would be born in the midst of oppression those in authority would also try to kill him through the execution of children but they would not succeed And his name is Jesus. You see, this story of Israel being liberated from slavery, and and, and the book of Exodus is is not just their story, it's our story too. You see, the Bible tells us that we are all slaves in need of redemption. John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 34 says this, And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, Jesus is the Son who sets us free. Moses who came to redeem his people from slavery, or Jesus came to redeem us from the slavery of sin. And Jesus does this by dying on the cross in our place. He takes the punishment upon himself that we deserved and then he rises again so that by faith we could be forgiven of our sin and by faith we we could become changed people so that we could be redeemed from the penalty, from the power and from the very presence of sin. Just as Jesus set free the Israelites, Jesus came to set us free. The story of Exodus reminds us of this beautiful truth. And in closing, it also reminds us of the truth that God is not silent. God is not detached. God is not distant. God is not a dispassionate deity. But rather, he hears his people's cries. He knows their, he knows their suffering. He will keep his promise. He will rescue them. And this is the hope that we have as Christians. That Jesus has conquered sin and death. And as we eagerly await his return, where, we, where he will completely wipe out sin once and for all, a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eye, we take comfort in the truth that he's with us in the midst of our pain. And by God's grace, I hope we can see that truth. And it would help us to see that no matter the dark situations that we find ourselves around, that God is with us in our midst. And this is all made possible for Jesus. He's not only with us, but he promises to take us through it, to bring us to that other side. And as one author comments, I just want to end with this quote, a guy called Michael R. Emnett says this, that by God's grace, the very experiences, the very experiences of suffering he could use for good. He says it this way, the very experiences that threaten to drive you furthest from God are the exact experiences that bring you into closest possible fellowship with your Saviour. May we see the op- may we see that when we are in those moments of hardship and darkness, that it is not it is not a moment for us to run away from God, but rather it is a moment to run towards Him, to find the mercy and the grace and the strength that we so desperately need. And as we receive that, as we as we meet with Him, and as we enjoy that mercy, that grace, and His strengthening and His comfort, and knowing that He knows all things, knowing that He's acting on our behalf, knowing that He sees everything, knowing that He knows and hears everything being comforted by those truths and while we walk with him, that we would then be used to invite other people to know that same God. That other people who are going through those similar, maybe even similar situations or worse situations, but they go through those situations without knowing the great God that we know. So as we know and walk with him, may he then empower us and use us to be tools so that he could bring others to know him too that he could bring others to salvation as well. Let us pray together.
Father, I want to thank you. Lord, I thank you that you were with your people in the midst of their suffering. And I, Lord, I, Lord, and I know, Lord, we, we often have the benefit of hindsight of being able to look back. But Lord, may, may these truths encourage us in the moments when there is darkness around us. When we find our lives immersed in darkness, Lord. Lord, help us to see that you are in control. That you are at work, working about your promises, even when we don't see it. And Lord, may we this week meditate on the truth that you hear when we cry. That you are acting on our behalf in light of promises you have given us before. Lord, that you see everything. Nothing gets past you, Lord, and you know. Lord, may we meditate on these truths throughout this week. Lord, may they change how we live. May they change how we see and respond to suffering. Lord, may we not run away from you, but may we run to you. May we find the mercy and the grace that is found in you, Lord. And then may we be used to display that mercy and grace and, in, and to offer that invitation to those who do not know you. So Lord, as we go away today, help us to live out and apply that which we find in your word, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.